I wonder if you've ever noticed a benchmark while out walking. I suppose my grandfather was the first person to bring them to my attention. A specific mark usually carved into the stonework of a substantial building. As a child, the design reminded me of the motif on convicts' uniforms, so familiar to avid readers of the Beano and Dandy. Each benchmark has a particular datum, which is marked and recorded on ordnance maps, showing an accurate height above sea level. They form an integrated and interrelated national network of many thousands of such marks throughout the country and are, of course, of particular relevance to the building and civil engineering industry. Alter one of these benchmarks and, although this would be but a small, insignificant action, in theory it would affect all other related marks throughout Britain. Anyone then using this altered mark as a datum would find that any building or roadwork subsequently built built using this incorrect information would be flawed and not in harmony with all other benchmarks. Now, a short lesson on site levelling. I'm sure that you are familiar with surveyors on roadworks looking through instruments mounted on tripods. In the olden days, surveyors would take site levels in a similar fashion. We would, wherever possible, take our first reading on a benchmark and then proceed for the day taking other readings over a wide area. This involved moving the instruments many times. Finally, at the end of the day, we would return to the original benchmark and take a reading which should equal that recorded at the start of the day. However, quite often because of carelessness or human error, we would find this not to be the case and so would have to make corrections in order to bring our work into line. Why, why am I telling you all this? The Bible sets out many benchmarks given by God to enable us to live lives pleasing to Him, thus bringing blessings to others by our behaviour. Many churches and their leaders now treat these benchmarks, these biblical benchmarks, with indifference, carelessness or even contempt, modifying one here and another there while ignoring others completely. The buildings which are being built by these builders are severely flawed. So flawed, in fact, that some day, sooner or later, they will come crashing down and destroy many who have put their faith in these structures. In addition, we must all be watchful as we go through this life. We may have all started at the benchmark, but through worldly pressures, carelessness or other causes have gone off course. We need daily
to go back to the benchmark and check up on our standing and how we measure up to God's standard and his benchmarks. Sadly, as you may observe from time to time, you will find some benchmarks on buildings overgrown with thorns and thistles and obscured from view. In similar vein, those benchmark truths of scripture have been obscured and hidden. However, that does not make the benchmark of God's word irrelevant. It cannot be moved. What is needed though is to clear away all the weeds and get back to those truths and doctrines which have been hidden from view for far too long. We pray that this little talk will help us all to do just that. Earthly man-made benchmarks may be moved or destroyed but the benchmarks of scripture are immovable because they are settled in heaven. Psalm 119 and verse 89 tells us forever O Lord thy word is settled in heaven. We shall continue and we shall examine some of the benchmarks which have been moved by various churches today. A major one is the absolute authority and sufficiency of the Bible. Either one accepts that the Bible in its original languages is indeed the inspired word of God or it is not. There is just no middle ground. The Bible cannot be partially inspired and partially the musings, imaginings and psychology of men. So first of all, a, a synopsis of what we believe. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In God's word we have all that we require for Christian living. No need for human psychology or ideas. In fact, we are warned to steer clear of such things. Colossians 2 verses 6 to 10 as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Believers are encouraged to study God's word as workmen. Too many Christians today are like TV experts, 
They gain all their knowledge from listening to others, but never by working out the scriptures for themselves. 2 Timothy 2, 15-17 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. When we come to read and study God's word, we must remember that it is not just a dead book of words, but is God's written word, which is alive and is the truth. It will be our guide in life. As we read these precious words, the spirit of truth would speak to our spirits through it. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick, living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Psalm 119.105 Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Our Lord prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth of God's word. John 17:17, 17, 17, Sanctify them, speaking to his Father, he said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is eternal and everlasting. Jesus Christ is spoken of in John as the word. So we have in John 1, verses 1 to 3 in the beginning was the word the lord jesus christ and the word was with god and the word was god the same was in the beginning with god all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made now what is the position in churches today the articles of faith of the anglican church Number six teaches, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not required by any man that it should be believed as an article of faith. That's a good benchmark to commence with. But the Lambeth Conference in 1968 agreed that Anglican clergy are no longer required to agree to the denomination's 39 Articles of Faith. The benchmark was being moved. In his book Nature and God, Archbishop of Canterbury William Temple said, there is no such thing as revealed truth. The Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins, was applauded at the Synod of the Church of England when he defended his doubts about the virgin birth and bodily resurrection of Christ. Elsewhere he described the God of the Bible as a cultic idol. What of the present incumbent of the See of Canterbury, Rowan Williams? 
The description which Williams gives of John the Divine in his book of Revelation is the plainest example here. I'm going to quote, or I am quoting here from The Theology of Rowan Williams, an outline critique and consideration of its consequences produced by the Latimer Trust, an Anglican organisation. It goes on. The book contains two scripts, one with a clear and haunting authority, William says, but the other tightly written. And these are Rowan Williams' words about the revelation of John the Divine, the book of Revelation. Here's what he says. One of the scripts, tightly written, pen driving into cheap paper, page after page of paranoid fantasy and malice, like the letters clergymen so frequently get from the wretched and disturbed. These are quotations from William's book, Open to Judgment, and it is those portions in that book that this pamphlet draws our attention to. The pamphlet goes on. It is true that for Williams even this script contributes to our hearing the word of God, but it does so by its stark contrast with the other script. Williams goes on in his book. Perhaps as we read the revelation of John, we should let its ugly and deceased elements speak to us in this way. The very disorder, the madness and vengefulness of certain passages can help us to hear more clearly the depth and authority of others. He goes on. The rantings of John the Divine about his theological rivals are part of the byproduct of this very vision of the Living One that shows these ravings for what they are. By showing the radical and unconfined purpose of God in Jesus Christ. He talks about John writing the book of Revelation. He goes on to say, We aren't called, we are not called, or we aren't called to believe and endorse all they say, only to ask ourselves what we are taught here about the strangeness and sometimes the terror of the Word of God to fragile minds. And that's the end of the quote. And it comes from Open to Judgment by Rowan Williams. One can only be amazed that the members of the Anglican Church, even in its present state, should countenance as its leader one who subscribes to such views, especially in the light of the warnings contained in the very book of Revelation which he is criticising. Do they, along with Williams, hold John's writings in such low esteem, the ramblings 
of a deranged mind. Here's what Revelation 1 verse 3 says. Blessed is he that readeth. And they that hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. And at the end of Revelation, verse 20, chapter 22 and verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. By the way, it's interesting, who wrote the book of Revelation? Was it John? Who is said to be ranting and being vengeful? Look at Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Very serious. Let us move on. We may also be told that scripture must be read in the light of the tradition of the church. Writing in a booklet, Anglican and Irish, the very reverend V.G.B. Griffin, one time Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Here's what he says, here's his advice. In interpreting, interpreting the Bible, we must look to the collective experience and universal tradition of the church. You understand? In interpreting the Bible, we must look to the collective experience and universal tradition of the church. Well, the first question is, which of the many traditions are we to follow? I was reading the preface of an old edition of the Book of Common Prayer, which I have, and uh, this was written following a revision made many years ago. Uh, here's the quote. Of such ceremonies as be used in the church, and have had their beginning by the institution of man, at the first were of godly intent and purpose devised and yet at length turned to vanity and superstition. Some entered into the church by indiscreet devotion, and such a zeal as was without knowledge. And for because they were winked at in the beginning, they grew daily to more and more abuses, which not only for their unprofitableness, but also because they have much blinded the people and obscured the glory of God 
are worthy to be cut away and clean rejected. Here we have a typical example of tradition which had grown up over many years and which they had discovered was unprofitable and they were being rejected. The Book of Common Prayer was established by law. All we can say is, thank God, his word is settled, established in heaven, and never, never needs to be amended or revised. Here's what Jesus said about tradition. Mark 7, verse 9, and then we go on to read a portion of verse 13. And he, Jesus, said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things ye do. The benchmarks are constantly being moved. And furthermore, the Anglican Communion appeals to the whole of that primitive tradition of which the sacraments, the creeds, the canon of the Bible and the histor historic episcopate are all parts. That's a report from the Lambert Conference. It's interesting to note that the order of priority in this Lambert report, report is tradition comes first. The, the traditional creeds which are accepted by the majority of churches today are the Apostles, the Nicene and the Athanasian. Whilst we would agree with many of the statements in these, there are also some which cannot be reconciled to the plain teaching of Scripture. Incidentally, the Apostles' Creed does not originate from the Apostles, nor for that matter all of their doctrine. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We've all repeated that on many occasions. Although we believe that all three members of the Godhead were involved in creation, uh, in Genesis 1.26 it says, Let us make man in our image. The New Testament clearly teaches that it was the Lord Jesus Christ to whom creation was attributed. To ascribe creation solely to God the Father is not actually correct. John 1 3 all things were made by him the Lord Jesus Christ the Word and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1 16 and 17 for by him the Lord Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible whether be they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. Well, returning to the creeds and speaking of the Lord Jesus. The uh, Apostles' Creed says. He ascended into heaven from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And again, still speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Athanasian Creed, it says, He ascended into heaven 
from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead at whose coming all men all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give accounts of their own works and they that have done good shall go into life everlasting and they that have done evil into everlasting fire let's look briefly within the confines of this little talk uh, to try and clarify what we believe in relation to the last judgment and to those who will be judged the great white throne we talk about firstly regarding true Christians people who are born again of the Spirit of God when a believer dies he goes to be with the Saviour here's Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 we are confident I say and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord Philippians 1.23 Paul says for I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better before the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus all those who died went to Sheol which was divided into two compartments the righteous went to a place of comfort Abraham's bosom paradise awaiting their liberation from that place the wicked dead before and since the crucifixion of Jesus Christ they went to a place of torment awaiting the final judgment Jesus taught that between these two was in Luke 16:26, a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot neither can they pass to us for that that would come from thence when Christ ascended into Sheol he liberated the souls held captive in Sheol and scripture says he led captivity captive in triumph with him to heaven this compartment of Sheol where the righteous went is now empty these righteous ones and all believers who have died since are now in heaven awaiting the resurrection which will take place at the rapture or translation when Christ will come firstly to the air for his church the bride of Christ first Thessalonians 4 15 to 18 for this we say to you in the word of the Lord that we the living Paul speaking here he expected the rapture to take place at any time we the living who remain to the coming of the Lord are in no way to anticipate those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself with an assembling shout with archangels voice and with the trump of God shall descend from heaven and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we the living who remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air 
and thus we shall be always with the Lord. So encourage one another with these words. And then seven years after the rapture and the first resurrection, Christ will return to this world with the saints to set up his millennium reign. He will be recognized by the Jews as their Messiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The events recorded in Matthew 25 from verses 31 to 46 will then take place. Listen, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit upon his throne of glory and all the nations shall be gathered before him and he shall separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's interesting actually that the authorised version omits thee before the word nations. It would appear that the translators believe this event referred to the final judgment and dropping the definite article gave an interpretation which suited their doctrine. The Lord shall here at this time judge the living nations, the quick, the living, and a thousand years later the dead at the great white throne as we shall see later. However, this judging of the nations is the time as prophesied in many passages such as Psalm 2 verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See also Joel chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. For behold in those days and at that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. In Matthew 25, nations refers to the Gentiles as distinct from Jews. There are three classes mentioned in this passage, the sheep, the goats, and the third group, these my brethren. These sheep and goats are being judged, but there is nothing said of any judgment for these my brethren. Therefore, it cannot be a universal judgment as is commonly held. The nations, the sheep and goats, are being judged in relation to their conduct to these my brethren, the Jewish nation. There is no resurrection mentioned. The sighting of the holy angels falls totally into line with the passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-9, to speaking of the day of the Lord. Here's what it says. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, 
when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This passage is not referring to the final judgment. Secondly, believers will not appear at the final judgment of Jesus Christ. The final judgment where Christ will judge the dead. John 5.24 Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, into judgment, into damnation, into accusation, but is passed from death unto life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. After the rapture, Christians, that is, those born again, as we see in John 3, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, to be judged as to how they lived as Christians, but not in relation to their eternal destiny. Paul makes this perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, as yet by far. Scripture shows and teaches two resurrections. As we have seen, all believers in Christ will be resurrected from among the dead. Philippians 3.11 At Christ's return to the air, Christians, believers, will be resurrected, resurrected from among the dead. There will be a period of seven years. And after that, the Bible teaches that they will return with the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth at his glorious appearing to the Mount of Olives and at the start of his millennium reign. Listen to Zechariah 14 verses 3 to 5. Then shall the Lord go forth, forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. 
and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. This, this ties in so well with Jude, Jude chapter 1, 14, 15. Behold, the day cometh, the Lord cometh, with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Look at Revelation 20 verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Uh, finally, let us look at the description of the second resurrection and final judgment, as we find it in Revelation 20. There are a thousand years between the two resurrections. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a post-millennium scenario. Who are being judged? The dead. For not one living person is mentioned here. All have passed through death. All are judged out of those things which were written in the books. The accounts are written down. There is no place for a personal account of one's life. And what is the final judgment? Death, eternal and awful, separation from God and all that is good. To dwell in the company of evil forever. How horrifying. How alarming. How solemn. Nowhere in scripture is a general resurrection taught. Where all men 
will stand for judgment at the great white throne. Most churches and creeds teach that all men, and think about this, Moses and Elijah, who were with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration and were obviously in some way privy to his, suffer his coming suffering, for they said, it says, they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. Or another person, the Apostle Paul, who could say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labour. Yet what I shall choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Who else will be, according to this teaching? Abraham, the friend of God? So all these and everyone else since Adam will stand waiting at the final judgment for their eternal destiny to be decided. This teaching does not stand up to the plain doctrines of Scripture. Prayerfully think about these verses for assurance on this important belief. Listen to these verses as I close. John twenty thirty one. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. First John five thirteen. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. You have. It's not a hope. It's not bring us into eternal life. We already have the gift of eternal life. John 14, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there he may be also. That cannot refer to the great white throne. John 5.24 Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. And finally, John 6.47 Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life.